Western Europe and Asia to meet here tonight and get this whole dick-a-mess under control. So I'm afraid there'll be no washroom tonight. Hello and welcome to the most swell supreme storytelling time. I am Stephen Scott Srebrenik, your host. And today's tale is about the band Guar. If you've never heard of them, I'm going to give you a uh, rundown of what they're about here shortly. And this story is called, Anybody Ever See Guar Before? You see... I used to be the executive producer, director, and host of a semi-famous public access cooking show based out of Manhattan called Cooking with the Hook. I'm not going to get into the details of that in this particular juncture, you know, or this story. But why I bring it up is that that community of public access TV producers in any town is a small, odd group, somewhat cliquish, somewhat isolationist, somewhat competitive, and somewhat bizarre. And I happen to be part of that weirdly interesting group while doing my cooking show back in the early 1990s. There was my friend Howard Platzer, a.k.a. Howie Zappa, who uh, incidentally was uh, told to stop using that name by the Zappa family at some point uh, after (laughs) taking that moniker. (laughs) But... You know, <laughs> he looked like Howard. I mean, he looked like Frank Zappa, so he decided to call himself Howie Zappa. <laughs> Who could blame the guy? Anyway, this guy, Howie Zappa, one day, after he got diagnosed with a major thyroid problem, quits his job as some kind of financial financial wizard, you know, to become a host, producer, and executive producer, and director, and writer for his, quote, entertainment variety show called Rebel TV. It was a collage of music videos, live performances, interviews with New York oddballs and late night street dwellers and lots of strippers. Yeah, lots of strippers. Howie was into that. And in Howie Zappa's adventure in producing this hodgepodge of television, he ran into many of the local producers of public access in New York you know, City as we were all part of what was called the Manhattan Neighborhood Network. One of the producers that he met was a guy named Wolfgang Bush, who had a show called New York New Rock. And his show was strictly rock bands playing live or showing music videos interspersed with with in-depth interviews with the bands and the artists. Wolfgang, who would say in a highly flamboyant way, call me Wolfie, because... That's how it would come out of his thick German accent. Was always looking for a better quality and shooting, you know, and producing his show when he was introduced to me. And Wolfgang, if you're listening to this, please forgive me for the for the terrible impression. You don't sound like the way I'm saying it, <laughs> but <laughs> appreciate what I mean. Thank you, sir. <laughs> anyway, why I mattered to Wolfgang um, was that I had actually been trained to do cinematography and videography for my career. And at the time, I was working at NBC as a camera assistant, which was far more than any of the training or no training at all that most of the other local producers had or did in their lives. He knew I was serious about what I was doing, and he, and he was a very serious guy too, so we became friends and worked together on a few projects. And a few of the bands we worked together 
on were we interviewed and videotaped live, and most of them were rather unmemorable, as happens, you know, when you're looking for that one great moment in entertainment, especially as an interviewer, you know, or or making a show like we had, like he had. Um, and then there were times where Wolfgang landed some famous or semi-famous acts, and he would turn to me, you know, for aid in the production, usually as a camera person. We'd talk about TV-related producing things while, you know, on the way to whatever we were going to be shooting and then be relaxed on the way back, just enjoying the moments of the fact that we did what we did for our chosen careers. One of the great interviews that we got to do was a private half an hour with Robin Trower. Now, I don't know if anybody knows who Robin Trower is. He's an old English rocker and classy and very professional. And in the way he carries himself, there's a smoothness and cool that exudes from his being. And for anyone who's not sure of who Robin Trower is, well, he was long known as the, quote, white Jimi Hendrix, end quote. And the reality is that he was the guitarist in Procol Harum. If you haven't heard of Procol Harum, look them up. They did a great song called Whiter Shade of Pale and some other cool songs. And he eventually went on to a solo career in which his guitar playing is considered legendary. So it was a real honor to get to know not only to meet this rock and roll legend like that, um, but, you know, to interview him and, and be the videographer was, you know, pretty cool as well. I mean, look him up. The place we interviewed him was at a longtime famous music venue in Brooklyn, New York called L'Amour, the rock capital of Brooklyn. L'Amour, the rock capital of Brooklyn. It was, it was like, you know, a dignified musical experience and the crowd was respectful and the fans stood in line, you know, to get their albums from the 1970s signed by Robin, and they were an older crowd. Mostly, you know, Robin invited us to videotape as much of the show as we wanted and use it as freely as we would like in the days going forward. Now, the, now, the, now on the other hand, the next time I got called by Wolfie, Wolfie, it was the same place that we interviewed Robin Trower, but this time it was for a band neither of us had ever, ever heard of called Guar. That's spelled G-W-A-R. And this was back in 1993. And that was when the internet was a place for scientists to share their data between locations across the globe, for AOL to be the big chat room provider, and for people to send single pics of naked women and pictures of their cats doing what cats do. So looking up who Guar was is not something easy to do. So Wolfi and I get on the subway out to the deepest part of Brooklyn, carrying our camera and light kit, and have no idea who we're going to be interviewing. I didn't think anything of it as, you know, sure as shit, I, you know, uh, didn't know everything or every artist, so I was just going to see a new artist I'd never seen before, and that was always interesting to me, and, you know, being that it was going to be in Lemoore, you know, of course it ought to be cool. So we took the, the, the Q train, the subway, down to Lemoore, we took it south into Coney Island, which is the line that goes out there, which is where the original Nathan's hot dog stand is, you know, since 1919. So now that place is 103 years old, and we would always go and have a hot dog anytime anybody goes out there. We always did that. And I don't, you know, recall the rest of the trip to the club, but the details, once I was there, are, quote, clear as the azure sky of deepest summer, end quote. Wolfgang and I walked in and the manager tells us to set up at a table 
So we start breaking out equipment. Right as we finish setting up the camera and, and the lights from, you know, uh, and, and stuff, from backstage emerges a humanoid creature. Yes, uh, I said, a humanoid creature appears. Wearing what looks like a loincloth, except that there is a two and a half foot long prosthetic penis hanging there, where a penis would usually be, of course. The head of this humanoid was a grotesque alien-looking thing that was designed to specifically shock and offend. I was taken aback because I was, this is not what I was expecting. So Wolfgang, the consummate professional that he always was, he acts like he's not disturbed or affected by the creature before him. And he does, and like he always does when he cues me to roll tape and he, says, he starts, Hello everyone, I'm Wolfgang Busch and this is New York New Rock. Tonight, we are with the heavy metal band Gwaal. And, you know, at that moment, it was hard to watch my friend and professional interviewer that he was struggle to say a word that would not be conjugated in such a, in such a way of his home language of German. So he fumbled the words like a, you know, like a child trying to speak for the first time. And I mean no disrespect when I say this about my friend. But damn it, shit, that was funny as fuck. And I struggled to keep from busting out laughing because his accent was so thick. And the word was so off-putting. And the aliens standing there in the loincloth. And I'm in Lamore, And the whole thing's totally surreal as anything that was ever surreal before or since to me anywhere, anytime. And it was, you know, only at that moment that the creature utters its first words with, with, with us saying, The band is Guar. In perfect American English, he says it. And Wolfgang says, responds with, Great, great. What's your name? Uh... I, I, I keep the camera. I keep the camera, you know, steady as as this is transpiring. Wonder what's going to happen next. And the creature responds, "I am odorous urungus." And Wolfgang kind of smirks, but he stays totally cool and says, "Okay, where are you guys from?" And I'm like giggling inside. This is this is getting so freaking weird to me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And he says, where are you guys from? Which left the door open for the next phase of insanity where Odorous Urungus explained that they were from another galaxy, which I completely believed to be feasible. <laughs> and that they had traveled to Earth in a spaceship. Again, totally believable. I'm nearly laughing my head off because there's this alien with a two and a half foot cock swinging back and forth as the question is going on, <laughs> whether it's real fake or otherwise. <laughs> and it's all like, all of a sudden, like, like nothing is making any sense at all. And then Wolfgang asks out of the blue, so how do you guys power your spaceship? And without missing a beat, without hesitating for even half a second, Odorous Urungus says, quote, when we come to Earth, the first thing we do is go to the East Village and buy as much crack as we can, as we can find, because that's how we fuel our rocket ship. And at that point, I surely did bust out laughing out loud. But fuck, I mean, who wouldn't? It, did, it really didn't matter anyway, because the whole situation was disturbing. And so bizarro that my laughing didn't negatively affect the rest of the interview, which continued to be completely off the rails. And after a a few more uncomfortably strange moments. The interview was wrapped up and we were invited to stay for the show. And uh, I'm going to continue this after this short a bit, bit about who opened uh, for Guar that evening. There was only one opening act for Guar that night and it was a band I had heard about and really wanted to see and that band was called Flipper. 
When I was in college in 1984 at the State University of New York at the College of Old Westbury in Long Island, my friend, uh, and may he rest in peace, his name was Alfred Tennyson Hobbs Jr. Yes, that was his actual name, Alfred Tennyson Hobbs Jr. And he was this radical bass-playing punk that introduced me to a lot of, lot of cool punk music and to the band Flipper. And at that time, their signature song was called Sex Bomb, which was nothing but a bunch of muddled chords and sloppy drums strung together. And the singer just keeps saying, she's a sex bomb, my baby, yeah, for a few minutes, just variations on that. And it was, it was punk at its best. Minimalist, barely structured, rude, completely dissonant overall as punk should be. And they left an everlasting impression to me, along with a song called Brainwash. On the back of the Sex Bomb single, which was a 7-inch, 33-RPM record, that song, if you listen to it enough times, I truly believe could or would literally produce a brainwashing effect on a weak-minded individual not paying attention. Those inane lyrics only included the following lines. One, two, three, four, indecipherable chanting. And then, and then he would say that you'd hear that you'd hear... Mm, okay, like, see, there was this, and what, and then there, what, never mind, forget it, and you wouldn't mind, you wouldn't understand anyway. The, the guitars and bass and drums sounded as muddy and messy as possible, along with those lyrics, and recorded in a minute or so loop that was repeated on the record six or seven times, with the last loop running into the groove at the end of the recording on the record, where it would just keep repeating, Never mind, forget it, you wouldn't understand anyway. Never mind, forget it, you wouldn't understand anyway. Never mind, forget it, you wouldn't understand anyway. And it would keep saying that unless you physically got up and took the needle off the record. And it was genius, a record meant to be what every parent was afraid of, where the song was set up to hypnotize the listener. And to me it was one of the most punk things I'd ever heard, even to through this day. Obviously, I didn't let it hypnotize me, but, you know, I felt it, you know, to, to be able to do what it, it, it possibly could under the right circumstances. So now it's six plus years later, and here I am getting to meet the band that recorded Sex Bomb and the Mighty Brainwash, Flipper. Here they are, and see them play, and I get to do it, and it's free, which always makes the music that much sweeter, you know? Well, folks, let me be clear. It was nice to meet the guys in Flipper. And at the same time, it was a total and complete letdown. Recently, I unearthed a photo taken that night with myself and my friend Wolfgang, who was doing the interview. And one of the guys had a beer in his hand, and he had a fresh one tucked into his vest pocket. Beer was definitely the focus of Flipper, and not music. They came onto the stage and didn't play one intelligible note. Even for the mess of nothing their minimalist records are, this, quote, performance was a total disaster. Not one redeeming moment of listenable songs emanated from the stage as the drunks pulled a 1976 Sex Pistols type of appearance, and I hated it. Now looking back 30 years later, right? The lack of respect for themselves, the lack of respect for the audience, the lack of respect for the world that they exhibited that night, they did it as only really punks could. Oh, yes. Flipper. Never mind. Forget it. You wouldn't understand anyway.
So now back to the Guar story. What Flipper did that night was unforgettable for being totally forgettable. Or maybe what I was about to see was something that would be so overwhelming to make me almost forget everything else up to that point that, that Guar began. And the first thing that happened for Guar's show was that they had staged a giant protest with giant paper mache heads on the protesters. And I had my camera up and ready and started filming immediately. After all, I'd never seen a, a, an onstage protest of the band that was about to come on. Behind the protesters was a wall that allowed for the show to be set up behind it, unbeknownst to me at the time. I didn't know what was coming. And after some back and forth between uh, a, quote, rep for the band, end quote, and the protesters, and yes, I was wondering why there were protesters there too. And then with a gigantic explosion, the band breaks down the wall and in their primitive, alien, fire-breathing, explosive, half-nude, and blood-spilling way that only Gwar can do, they delivered a show the likes I had never imagined, let alone I thought I would be privileged to see. And I mean, I say privileged because I'm standing there for free. People pay for this. And I'm standing in the back recording it. And it was some of the most insane things I'd ever seen perpetrated on a stage in a show while spilling and shooting 500 gallons of fake blood that was half sprayed on the willing participants in the first five to maybe ten rows. I couldn't tell how far the blood was going. As exciting, grotesque, disgusting, intriguing, questionable, lewd, rude, intelligent, and brilliant and musically excellent performance, these extremely talented group of many individuals created an incredible environment of insanity on the stage the likes most people have never seen and may never see. Their vision of a horror sci-fi extravaganza built around heavy metal songs is the extreme of what came of the heavy metal movement that progressed to this over-the-top entertainment since the early 1970s. And I can only recommend that watching some of their live performances is the only way to convey what I'm trying to say here. And you can find them on YouTube. Uh, you know, unbelievable stuff. Each song was crazier than the next. The onstage violent was, violence was, uh, was never stopped once the show started. Why were they having fake protesters on the stage beforehand? Because it was one of the most disturbing things that I had ever seen. Because none of what I was seeing had anything intended to see that day or had any expectation of viewing in a live musical performance. So many times during this maddening show, and I looked out from behind my, my viewfinder only to utter to myself, am I actually seeing this? <coughs> Excuse me. And I looked out from behind the camera to make sure that what I thought I was seeing was actually happening and that I wasn't completely losing my mind or going insane or, or just, you know, snapping, blacking out. I didn't know what was going on. And the fake protesters, you see, they were there. They only added another layer to the madness that they captured and, and related to their eager fans. It was an hour and a half into the show when I'm taping this thing, when I get tapped on my shoulder and behind me is a woman about five foot two, a little chubby, you know, and I, and I, I mean that in, not in, a, in any negative way, a nice round woman, you know, a little curvy. And she's dressed in black laced rock and roll garb. And on each side of her was a gigantic guy each being a minimum of 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", you know, just too big. I'm, I'm only five, you know, nine, so they were big to me. 
It scared the shit out of me, really, you know, since I was witnessing, you know, beheadings, murder, mayhem, you know, the execution of an old lady in a wheelchair by chainsaw, you know, by this point, and so on. So the reality of, of scary people coming up on me unexpectedly was really, at that moment, nothing to sneer at. They, too, were dressed all in black, and they looked like they crushed human beings for a living, but they were human. So to me, that was actually scary, too. And she then explains to me that she is the band's manager and that I was not allowed to tape the show. And I'm like, to them, I was like, yeah, but, but I've been taping the whole show. I mean, it's only going on public access. And then she cuts me off. You have to give me the tape and don't tape anything else tonight here. But to be fair, I'll send you an authorized live show for to use instead. And I handed over the tape and was left alone to enjoy the rest of the show. Six weeks later... I received the Guar Live videotape that the band manager promised. And we aired some of it on Wolfgang's New York New Rock public access TV show. And of course the response was nutty because the footage was so shocking. What a fucking freak show, you know? And I ain't never seen nothing like it or, or nothing, you know, before or since. And, you know, I have to say at the end of all this, it was a great honor working with the great Wolfgang Bush you know, he's, he's a, an award-winning uh, producer and director and, and host. And, and, and working on those projects back in the past, I'm happy to still say that I'm friends with him and, uh, and Howard Platzer, who introduced us both. And, uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm honored to know both of you guys. So here, this, this story is dedicated to you, Howie, and to you, Wolfie. And thanks so much, you know, for... Uh, for the great times we we had back in the in in the city back back when, and uh, that's it for today's story, folks. Uh, I appreciate you tuning in to the most swell supreme storytelling time with me, your host, Stephen Scott Srebrenik. Tune in again soon. I'll be posting something shortly. Peace. <laughs>